Welcome to Roast Magazine Audio Articles. Roast focuses on coffee from a technical perspective, covering the art, science, and business of coffee roasters. Presenting Additive Fermentation Infused Coffee is Gaining Popularity and Sparking Industry Debate by Chris Kornman. Upon receiving a gift bottle of co fermented apples and grapes recently, I thoughtlessly posed the question. Is it a cider or a wine? My friend responded, It's both. Perhaps a purist would respond differently, saying, It's neither. Fluid definitions in beverage making constantly challenge traditional understanding of our crafts. In coffee, innovations in processing methods have become increasingly common. Successfully produced anaerobic and carbonic styles of fermentation regularly take top spots in cup quality competitions and top billings on roasters' menus. Even honey processing is only a few decades old. Limited commercial volumes were first available in 1993 per Robert Griffith, owner of Capricorn Coffee, an exporter in Brazil. And there was a time in distant history when washing and fermentation were experiments rather than the norm. Yet nothing seems to irk traditionalists more than when you suggest infusing a coffee fermentation tank with anything other than depulped coffee cherries, water, yeasts, and bacteria. Concerns about this type of fermentation adulteration range from potential allergen contamination to cheating in quality competitions. Fermentation additives. Fermentation for coffee has long been a simple matter of practicality. Processors harness the power of bacteria and yeasts to extract the coffee seed from its fruit. It wasn't viewed as a quality additive process. It was risk mitigation, reducing the amount of material separating us from the green bean, thereby reducing processing risk and improving consistency. However, the past 10 years or so have proven to the specialty coffee industry that fermentation also has potential to be additive. One trend among some coffee professionals is to take that additive principle as literally as possible by co-fermenting or infusing coffee pulp or whole coffee fruit with extra ingredients. Let's draw a quick distinction between inoculation, where a processor adds a starter culture, usually a known strain of yeast, to control the microbial population, and co-fermentation, where processors add food products to the slurry. The most common non-microbial substrate additive is fruit, but I've also seen hops, spices, organic acids, and even pressed coffee pulp and juice. Usually the runoff of a prior fermentation batch, sometimes called must or mosto in Spanish, in yet another example of wine language contorted into the coffee lexicon, as wine must is simply unfermented crushed grape juice and solids, added to a coffee fermentation. For roasters who sell their products to customers, there are understandable concerns about the transparency in labeling and adherence to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, guidelines. If something other than coffee is included in the bag of roasted beans, it would need to be labeled as such. However, for practical purposes, when it comes to post-processing export, roasting, and packaging, a co-fermented coffee is currently considered 100% green coffee just like any other raw coffee product. Allergens are another major consideration here, and one on which the jury appears to still be deliberating regarding co-fermented coffees. For ingredients of concern, best practice would likely dictate full clarity on inputs. 
However, industry and government standards are quite lax with regard to green coffee in general, which is seen as a low-risk product and generally exempt from most produce regulations other than the FDA's good manufacturing practices, which do not include language on listing co-fermented ingredients. Furthermore, because coffee undergoes a kill step by roasting and brewing, it is considered generally safe for consumption regardless of major flaws. To show the extent of this lack of regulation, existing language for green coffee from the FDA is unrestricted and considered fit for consumption even when including adulteration with live mold and or insects at up to 10% by count of green coffee beans, or better than grade 8 on the New York Coffee Association standards, which allows an equivalency of 450 standard defects in a 350-gram sample. Suffice it to say that guidance is lacking. Under current legal regulations, it does not appear that co-fermented coffees require any different handling or labeling than conventional beans. They are neither forfeited nor enriched under current definitions, and it's unlikely that any current regulatory body would recognize co-fermented coffee as anything other than green coffee. As a result, these experimental processes are not currently subject to any additional prerequisites. Acidic additions. Let's examine a few reasons and methods producers might employ co-fermentation strategies. One of my favorite coffee farms to visit is the Vahoro family's estate on the outer rim of the Gorongoro caldera in Tanzania. While it's been a few years since I've been back, Marcelo Pereira, a coffee processing consultant and quality specialist, recently visited the estate to spend time with Neil Vahoro on the farm and with Kavita Vohoro at the Quality Control Lab and Dry Mill in Arusha. I spoke to Pereira, who has been encouraging producers like the Vohoras to infuse their anaerobic fermentations with citric acid or even citrus fruit. For Pereira, the decision starts at the cupping table. If you're a good cupper, you don't need a chemistry degree, he claims. Pereira noted a distinctive lack of perceivable citric acid in anaerobically fermented coffees and felt this style was missing something. You can't describe a coffee as perfectly clean without a little brightness, he says. Pereira began working with different acid types, including malic, tartaric, and phosphoric, to increase the acidity. It's worth noting that these acidification techniques are well known and widely used in wine fermentation at both boutique and commercial scales. Fermentation itself initiates a drop in pH, resulting in higher measurable acidity. In addition to altering the actual acidity, Pereira ultimately sought to improve the perceived sensory acidity. Thus, adding enough citric acid, which he claims works best of all the trials he's run, to lower the pH slightly, but not so much as to kill the yeasts and bacteria, alters the flavor profile. Pereira's theory is that the no-oxygen fermentation environment encourages lactobacilli bacteria, which outcompete most of the yeasts we expect in more traditional open-air coffee fermentation environments. Lactobacilli metabolize sugars into lactic acid. Lactic acid is indeed sour and lowers the pH of the substrate, but if you've ever prepped for the Coffee Quality Institute Q-Grader exam, you'll know that lactic acid, as we often experience it sensorily, seems less sour than citric acid. It's more about mouthfeel than acidity, Pereira says. 
He wants to present a more complete tasting anaerobically fermented coffee to the public using a fermentation additive. From now on, I will always add citric acid for anaerobic, he adds. Coffee must ferment. Can you just throw anything into the tank and get coffee to taste like something different? Pereira speculates that without research and testing, the average infusion experiment is unlikely to produce meaningful results, and that the investment, particularly in an additive that's not readily available, such as non-native fruits, might not be worth the payoff. I can cite plenty of examples of co-fermentation gone awry for every success I've tasted. Amanda Amato, coffee trader at Royal Coffee, buys a small amount of infused coffee from Edwin Noreña of Alquimista Specialty Coffee and Finca Campo Hermoso in Quindío, Colombia. Among Noreña's more inventive coffees, his black ginger ale geisha is among the most complex and complicated, tasting quite a bit like fresh ginger, lime, hops, and margarita mix. The process is described by Noreña as black honey double carbonic maceration mosto and galaxy hop infused. The inclusion of hops in fermentation is unusual but not unheard of, despite the fact that hopping and fermenting in traditional beer making are distinct processes. The hops aren't nearly as attractive to bacteria and yeasts as sugars and pectins in the coffee mucilage, but the roasted coffee does taste hoppy. Nureña also does an ahi chili infused ferment, which might be my love language. Does simply spending time together in a fermentation chamber impart new flavors? It's probable. Obviously, it does work, Amato says, discussing flavor profiles. Otherwise, they wouldn't taste like ginger ale or hops. While there are many iterations of failed or flawed attempts at such flavor alteration, the success stories taste unique and also distinctly like coffee, just with the volume turned up a little on the primary flavors something quite different from a flavored coffee from a roasting facility. Current understanding of traditional fermentation in coffee, per separate research presented at the 2021 ASIC conference by both Valentina Lanzaric and Gerard Bytoff, is that microbial activity surrounds but doesn't penetrate the seed itself, except in the case of ferment, sensory, and sour stinker physical defects. The flavors we assume are intrinsic in green coffee, which we once talked about in terms of terroir and cultivar, however, have been shown to be dramatically and alterably impacted by small changes in processing, such as a few extra hours in controlled fermentation, a secondary post-fermentation soak, or the amount of pulp left on the parchment. Our romantic idealization of the flavor of place and plant type are important, but largely subservient to process as determined by Nestle researchers in multiple studies published in Applied Environmental Microbiology. Noreña's audacious-sounding coffee could be taken as evidence of the producer's figurative intoxication with fermentation's power. However, for Noreña, his application of these processes is intended to be in service of the coffee's inherent flavors emerging out of respect. It was a development that we adapted from the world of wine to enhance the flavors of coffee, always trying to intensify each coffee process using the original coffee flavors. This is evidenced by Noreño's reliance on the coffee's mosto as a primary additive. He's literally just adding extra coffee juice and selected microbes from a previous fermentation batch of the same cultivar. 
Mosto is a catalyst that helps to accelerate, control, and enhance chemical reactions during coffee fermentation, he explains. Consider that the native yeasts and bacteria from a previous coffee batch will be naturally pre-selected as advantageous for the fermentation of coffee pulp, not to mention well-fed and energized. Rather than removing this biological fermentation engine and starting over from scratch for the next fresh batch of coffee, Nareño's addition of charged mosto may improve the efficiency of fermentation for the new lot. Applying the principle to a co-fermentation, if a microbe population is already suited to a non-coffee additive such as oranges, might we assume that the resulting flavors in such an environment are the result of the work of the increased diversity of biological infusion, yeasts and bacteria, in tandem with the additive, the fruit or other substance itself? More studies must be done to better understand this distinction. Roaster and Barista Community Reactions For the purist, coffee fermentation techniques represent a threat to the traditional ideals of coffee flavor. The idea that a processor could cheat a coffee's flavor profile by adding a non-coffee product makes some uncomfortable. Even though many coffee drinkers add substances like dairy, oat milk, sugar, and flavorings to their beverages daily to the very same end. However, potential opacity from a producer about their methods casts doubt in the mind of a terroir-driven roaster who seeks to highlight inherent flavors and transparency. Further, it seems to brush awfully close against a specific regulation in barista championships as outlined in the 2022 World Barista Championships Rules and Regulations. Coffee may not have any additives, flavorings, colorings, perfumes, aromatic substances, liquids, powders, etc. of any kind added at any point between the time the coffee is picked, as cherry, to when it is extracted into beverage. Substances utilized during growing, cultivation, and primary processing of the coffee are permitted, fertilizers, etc. The language is both confusingly restrictive and open-ended. The first sentence indicates that no additives of any kind may be used between harvest and brewing. This definition would exclude everything, including water, a liquid, plus yeasts and bacteria, which are all requisite in fermentation. If we take the phrase allowing substances utilized during primary processing at face value, then we have a gaping loophole which appears to leave the door open for additives in fermentation. Even from within, our industry seems to lack clear guidance on the topic. While setting boundaries is the very nature of rulemaking and competitions, one might wonder about the relevance of restricting fermentation stylings for a contest like the WBC, which largely judges the quality and skill of the barista's work, rather than that of the processor. Recently, Sasa Sestik, 2015's WBC champion, publicly harangued infused coffees during the 2021 season, accusing competitors of failing the transparency test. An article authored by Sestik, positioning himself as a grandfather of appropriate flavor boosting through carbonic maceration, calls for transparency in all, but accuses roasters and processors of outright fraud in the form of cinnamon-infused coffees and offers suggestions of how to test for co-fermentations. A call to action that lacks scientific rigor and reads a lot like vigilantism to me. In a rebuttal argument published on his personal blog, coffee industry consultant Christopher Ferran 
notes a few problematic postulations in Sestic's position. First, Ferran ponders the troubling nature of casting coffee producers as the villain in the narrative. Secondly, Ferran suggests that infused fermentation tanks are likely generating flavors due to modulation of microbes controlling the fermentation. The addition of a particular fruit may inoculate a coffee with unique yeasts or inhibit the presence of others. Darren Daniel, executive director of the Alliance for Coffee Excellence, which runs one of the industry's best-known quality competitions and auctions, the Cup of Excellence, confirms that the COE has a no-tolerance policy for foreign ingredients such as fruits, spices, or other non-microbial additives. If it's not part of the coffee chain, it's not allowed, he says. We had farmers disqualified who were using and stated that they weren't using these outside ingredients. This exclusion does not extend to inoculation with a yeast culture or mosto infusion. One of the earliest instances in the COE of an infusion accusation involved the Diamante parcel of Carlos Moreira's Finca El Cerro in Costa Rica. An annual entrant, it was the fourth place finisher in 2017 that put cinnamon coffee on the radar for many. Using a mosto anaerobic fermentation technique, the coffee exhibits a strong spice aroma and flavor reminding some of gingerbread and cinnamon and others of peppermint and menthol. That's the one that set this whole thing in process for us, Daniel explains. The coffee tasted like mint or Altoids, but Diamante was steadfastly saying that they had not added anything. Then we tested that product, and in fact, this looks to be a byproduct created as a result of fermentation and processing. That's natural. They've continued to enter COE and have coffees that have that same profile, doing what they do with yeast and regular inoculation that's created this flavor effect. For COE, the purist stance is accompanied by requisite transparency in processing from the producer. Institutionally, the competition's goals of quality discovery, relationship building, and price ceiling exploration become less convincing if coffees are processed under a shroud of uncertainty. The cinnamon gate controversy of competition starting in the late 2010s has spurred skepticism not just for those coffees destined for cupper spoons and judges demitasse cups on the world stage, but even in fully transparent language used about coffees destined for the consumer market. On a recent Instagram post, roaster and coffee person Kat Melheim celebrated a strawberry-infused Colombian coffee from Elkin Guzman she'd roasted for black and white coffee roasters in Durham, North Carolina. The post garnered over 600 likes and nearly 70 comments, including a skeptical thread started by Yashar Afkari, the lead barista and coffee roaster from Number 10 Cafe in Muscat, Oman, and a competitor in Brewer and Barista Championships. I reached out to Afkari, who told me he was concerned, if current trends continue, that we're going to forget about the taste of coffee. The worry that this year's global volume of infused coffee could lead to planet-wide amnesia about coffee's character seems a little far-fetched. But it's also quite clear that Sestik and Afkari represent a wider contingent concerned about purity and coffee flavor. Melheim agreed to an interview on the topic and brought black and white co-founder and coffee buyer and former U.S. barista champion Kyle Ramage to the conversation. After Melheim mentioned that these infused coffees tend to be unpredictable in the roaster, perhaps due in part to inconsistent methods applied in the field to an assortment of products by different producers, 
requiring additional attention on the part of the operator to find a roast degree, a roast level, that highlights the characteristics that have been imparted by the co-fermentation, our conversation quickly turned to less concrete subject matter. On the one hand, Melheim quickly noted that if you don't like the idea of these coffees existing, you've got some pretty good options. Don't drink it, don't roast it, don't buy it. If you don't want it, you don't have to have it, she says. The absolute beauty and simplicity of this position is that it's driven by what consumers want. There's an uncomplicated truth about customer preference, not mirrored by esoteric nuance, that shows a clear choice. If there's no market for co-fermented coffees, they will very quickly cease to exist. Black and white seems to think there is demand. At the time of this writing, four out of its 20 single-origin offerings were processed using some form of co-fermentation or infusion. On the other hand, Ramage ponders the very nature of specialty coffee, musing, what do you want to celebrate in coffee? Is it the amazing characteristics of the cultivated and fermented seed? I think yes, because otherwise it becomes a slippery slope into a processing experiment rather than a growing and cultivating experiment. I love these coffees and I want to celebrate how interesting they are, but I do not want them to represent what I view as pure excellence in the field of coffee cultivation and processing. Transparency and the way forward. The clarion cry from those sensitive toward a potentially problematic type of processing is for a higher degree of transparency. We must know everything about the techniques to ensure purity of the product, goes the argument. I was pleased to find that I'm not alone in experiencing some hesitancy to expose proprietary techniques that lead to great results for producers whose livelihoods may be dependent on a flavor note and cup score. Tim Hines, Sukafina Specialties Education Manager, weighed in on Fran's blog post with similar trepidation. Aside from health and safety concerns related to potential allergens, Heinz asks, if a producer is able to hit the desired flavor note by adding something during processing, why do they have to disclose their competitive advantage? In the context of disclosure, there's much that industry actors in consuming countries still obscure. Roasters rarely reveal blend components beyond country and macro-regional designations to the extent that, famously, a Kona blend may be as little as 10% product from the Kona districts of the Big Island of Hawaii. Is it possible that our calls for transparency from producers are bordering on a double standard? To answer that, a deeper question that's worth considering and answering clearly is whether fermentation additives are considered ingredients. If so, the implication being that the finished green coffee product is partly something else, fruit or spice infused into the coffee. Clarity in labeling should be a requirement, particularly in the case of potential allergens. If not, which is to say, the green coffee's flavor may be impacted, but its nature as a raw product is not substantively altered, at least not more so than any other currently accepted method of post-harvest handling, then the ingredient list need only be published at the processor's discretion. Simply put, the essential question for co-fermented coffees, still waiting for an answer from either science or industry or some combination thereof, is whether we should be categorizing them as something distinct. It could easily be argued that, unlike that bottle of co-fermented grapes and apples, a co-fermented coffee isn't a multi-product blend. The final output is still just green coffee. 
The alternative is that we begin labeling with a far higher degree of stringency co-fermented coffees, from green to roasted and brewed states, informing a change in the name and identity of the final beverage. The stakes here are high. In conversations with my colleague Josh Wiseman's tasting room manager at The Crown, reservations about the vocal opposition to these types of coffees being included in the specialty coffee canon range from topic to topic wildly, from boogeyman and straw men to Olympic medals. A phrase that really stuck with me when he said it, in reference to controlling centralized processing methods, it's almost like there's a lot of money at stake. This is a central truth we can agree to, regardless of which side of the co-fermentation argument you fall on. My place in the supply chain makes me both a buyer and a seller, and consequently, I spend a lot of time thinking about the outcomes of my decisions. In my role, I wield purchasing power and make final decisions based on a few cuppy notes and a largely subjective scoring system. But I must also meet consumer demand. I choose to pay fairly for coffees, co-fermented or not, but must face the consequences of exterior forces such as inflation, oversupply, or simple lack of interest, which might threaten the economic sustainability of my cost per pound. Accordingly, if you or I choose to buy and sell co-fermented coffees, implicit in that decision is to fulfill certain responsibilities to both our supply network and our customer base. This leads us ultimately back to the question of whether the differentiated categorization of co-fermented coffees is warranted, and to what types of labeling and transparency requirements may or may not be appropriate to best serve each actor in the coffee chain. Chris Kornman is a seasoned coffee quality specialist, writer, and researcher, and the Director of Education at The Crown, Royal Coffee Lab and Tasting Room in Oakland, California. He has extensive experience with coffee grading, roasting, sourcing, traveling, and tinkering. He is the author of Green Coffee, a guide for roasters and buyers. This article appeared in the January-February 2023 issue of Roast Magazine. To subscribe to the print edition of Roast or purchase a copy of past issues, visit roastmagazine.com. This audio article was narrated by Lily Kubota, recorded and produced by Upright Recording Studio, and published by Roast Magazine.